0: Science is not just for the people at the top level of academia, it's really meant to be for the world to share. The fungus kills the host and then eats it from the inside out.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Ask a Scientist, a science journal for kids podcast where we explore what it's like to be a scientific researcher. I'm Tanya Dimitrova, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Miranda Wilson. Hey there. Our guest today is Dr. William Beckerson. He's a molecular biology and genetics postdoctoral research fellow at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Here at Science Journal for Kids, we just adapted one of Will's papers about fungi that turn ants and other insects into zombies. The adapted article is available in two reading levels for school students as young as fourth grade up to 12 graders. Its title is, How Do Some Fungi Turn Insects Into Zombies? Today, we will talk with him about his work, but we will also get to know, at least a little bit, the person behind The Professional
0: Scientist.
1: Hello, Will, and welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, happy to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about a little science with you today.
2: Perfect. So... Let's start by talking a little bit about your educational background for our student listeners out there. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about your high school experience. Were you always interested in science or were you kind of a everything is interesting and focused later?
0: Back then, uh, science was probably one of my poorest subjects, actually. So one thing to note, I grew up in a really rural town in Kentucky. Um, So our science and education program was not the best they didn't have uh, the top of the line tools for us to play with and i can say uh at least in my high school career i never had the opportunity to look in a a microscope or anything like that during our class so during my high school career i actually didn't focus on science at all and i went to college to become an accountant Uh, and it wasn't until my third year of college that I took an introductory biology course that was required as part of this general education curriculum that I really discovered the wonders of the microscopic world and, and fell in love with biology. And I can remember the specific class because we were doing an exercise where we went and collected pond water and we were taking a look at this under the microscope and I knew what bacteria were. We looked at cell models in high school, but I had never actually seen what they look like under a high power microscope. So during this class we took what appeared to the naked eye as clear water and put this underneath the microscope. And what I saw was amazing. There was It was breaming with life. Lots of little, tiny, different-shaped microorganisms swimming around doing their thing. And I remember I was particularly enamored by amoebas. So for those of you out there who aren't familiar, amoebas are these very globular microorganisms that move around with these things called pseudopoda, which stands for false feet. So they kind of extend their cell membrane, and they push themselves around on the surface, like crawling around. And I remember seeing this particular amoeba crawl towards another small spinning life form that I later learned was a paramecium, and it began to do something peculiar. It started to wrap its pseudopoda around the paramecium like a big hug, and then it engulfed the paramecium inside the cell. And, And this is a process that I now know is called phagocytosis, and this is how amoebas find food and eat food. And I remember just being dumbfounded by the whole process, like, here is this tiny microscopic thing with no brain, no skeleton, and no muscles, yet it's smart enough to not only be able to recognize what is food and what's not food, but to move towards it and do so without any of these complex structures that we as humans have.
1: All the while being invisible to us.
0: Yeah, completely unaware to passerbys, right? So life is going on all around us. Uh, We can't even see it happening. And from this point forward, I was really interested in how do these tiny microscopic organisms do the things they do? And in particular, how do they interact with each other? How do they know what's going on around them?
2: So did you graduate with a business degree or did you switch majors?
0: I switched majors in my third year, which was kind of a feat. But I did graduate with a minor in business administration because by that point I had already had all the classes that you need for this this minor.
2: So are there any teachings or lessons from your time as a business student that you think helped you as a scientist? Absolutely.
0: So one of the most bizarre things that I learned very quickly into my introductory biology class is that some of the ways in which we operate as a society mirror very closely what happens at the cellular level. (laughs) <laughs> so in business we talk about this idea of people coming up with a product making blueprints for this product producing said product shipping it out to distribution centers the distribution centers ship it out you know globally to people's mailboxes uh, and this is basically how you know consumers receive Goods on their end. Well, if you compare that to what's happening inside a cell, it's very similar. So you have genetic material that is the blueprints. This genetic material is being made into products or proteins. These proteins are being shipped out to distribution centers like the Golgi apparatus. And then they're being sent to the various components of the cell, the the globe, if you will. So I found it remarkable how easy it was to learn biology with some of these business backgrounds.
2: That's awesome. So you're a first-generation college graduate, we learned. I am, Um, But obviously, you didn't stop after a bachelor's. You continued on to get a master's and a PhD, and now you are doing a postdoctoral fellowship. It's a long process to become a researcher. What has motivated you through all of your educational journeys?
0: As a business major, I wasn't the best of students. Uh, Maybe... B, C average, and a big part of that was because I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. But I found when I switched over to biology and I had this genuine drive of curiosity, my grades improved, and it's because I was doing the homework. I was reading outside of the material that was called for in class, and it's because I was genuinely interested in the topic. So looking back on it, yes, there's been a long road to get to where I have been today, but at no point was it ever really a process of okay, now I got to get my master's. Okay, now I got to get my PhD. It was really just having fun and diving into questions that I found curious, and then oh, I have a master's degree, and then oh, oh now I have a PhD. But yeah, so basically, you just you you become uh, completely engrossed in a topic that you're passionate about, and I think you'll find a lot of people who teach or do research or outreach at these levels kind of have that that same spark that drove them uh, through the madness of academia.
2: That driving force of curiosity has taken you to a lot of different places. Uh, You currently live in the Netherlands, which is really far away from Kentucky. (laughs) Yes. Um, Can you briefly describe what a day in your life in the Netherlands is like? Is it different from... The U.S. the lifestyle. Tell us a little bit about it.
0: Some of the biggest culture shocks, as you would call them, are things that you experience for the first time when you go to different places. Um, in reference to traveling to the Netherlands, uh, is just how much uh, vacation that 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 people have here. So, in in the United States, we we kind of have a two week window, you know, more or less, for, for most people. But in the in Europe it's much larger than that. It's closer to two months. Um, And this is spread out a little bit throughout the year. So a typical vacation might be two or three weeks for a a Dutch citizen. Um, And I gotta say at at first, you know, with my uh, very work, 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 American brain, I thought that this was somewhat of a waste of time. But what I've come to realize is taking breaks and exploring things not only allows you to broaden your perspective, but it also allows you to reset.
1: We have a question for you from a listener. Hi, my name is Natalia and I am a volunteer at Science Journal for Kids. In science, pretty much as in life, you often have to overcome challenges or hurdles. Could you share a particularly challenging experience in your research or in your life and how you overcame it?
0: In research, one of the first things that the professors in my department told me is you're going to fail at a majority of things you do. And and that's just based on the fact that you're really at the frontier of what we know. And I can remember the first time that I asked my professor as a PhD student a question that he didn't know the answer to. And that was shocking to me because growing up, going through education, it's really treated as this inventory of knowledge and we're supposed to memorize it all. And and that's how education has traditionally been taught. So to get to this point where I asked questions and there is no answer to was kind of shocking. And that really was a transition into my research career. But most of the things that we work on, particularly with zombie ants, a lot of what we do fails. So really, a a big portion of my job is to think critically about what's going wrong, what are other ways that we can approach the problem, and what are some creative solutions that we can come up with to try to figure out what's actually going on with this biological system. So we do a lot of outreach events with the communities, with science centers, with, uh, with zombie ants, for example. We did it with the parks and wildlife services, you know, doing summer camps and going out and showing people these really cool organisms. Um, And and we're really passionate about sharing this with the world.
1: While working on your paper's adaptation, we actually found out that you have extensive body tattoos showing different insects (laughs) um, (laughs) as a way to demonstrate your commitment to the field, maybe? So, tell us about your tattoos. Did you come up with the art yourself based on your work, or?
0: I I must say, I I had tattoos long (laughs) before I started studying zombie ants. So, uh, as a like uh, statement of my commitment to research, (laughs) I I don't know if that's fair to say, but it's definitely an expression of my love for what I do. Um, So, for those of you out there, I'll give you sort of a mental picture of what's going on. So. Uh, this tattoo starts at my wrist and goes all the way up to my shoulder blade and at the be- at the bottom is a graveyard and on top of that graveyard is this kind of branching tree and on this tree are tons of insects that are infected with different fungi that cause behavioral manipulation. So these are all examples of behavior manipulating parasites that we know of in nature and and we're finding more and more every year. It's quite amazing. So on on this this uh, tattoo sleeve we call it, There's the zombie ant, which uh, if you read the adaptation, you'll be very familiar with. There's also the zombie fly. Um, Now, what's interesting about the zombie fly is rather than causing this death grip behavior that we see from biting in ants, uh, the fungus is actually able to make the saliva of the fly very sticky. So it actually winds up gluing its mouthparts before the fungus comes out. There's also the zombie wasp, Uh, the zombie...
1: Actually, let's clarify this. What are zombie insects? How do you recognize them?
0: So a zombie insect is an insect that is being behaviorally manipulated by a parasite. And this usually results in behaviors that are advantageous for the parasite itself and its reproduction.
1: And lethal to the insect.
0: (laughs) Yes. That is just a small subset of the many different behavioral manipulating parasites out there. And not all of them are fungi. There's a great example of a snail that is infected by a worm. And the this is actually what we call a dual host system. So the worm reproduces and has offspring only in the guts of birds. And so these birds poop out the worms all over the place. It helps them spread. But in order to get back from the bird poop, to the birds, they infect a secondary host, a snail. And when they infect this snail, they cause a couple behavior changes that that we see in a lot of behavioral manipulating pathogens, primarily the the summit disease or the desire for the snail to climb up on top of things. Now, you might ask, like, well, you know, why, if you were a worm, would you care if your snail climbed up on top of things? Well, once the snail is on top of things, the worm then grows into the eye stalk of the snail and it's a very fluorescent color and this basically acts as neon lights for birds to come down eat the snail that's basically sitting on a dinner plate at the top of these uh, plant structures and then it completes its life cycle back in the digestive tract of birds so we see examples of of worms doing this crustaceans doing this uh some viruses you could even consider to be behavioral manipulating uh like uh, rabies for example uh there are uh, protists like uh, Toxoplasma gondii that can cause behavior changes in mice. So it's it's really a wild world out there, and there's many examples of these uh, symbiotic relationships that cause you know weird and very cool phenotypes.
1: Will they be called symbiotic if one of the participants in them dies gruesome death at the end? Yeah, so
0: I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because as part of our outreach, one of the questions we get asked a lot is this question, like, why do you call this symbiotic? And I think this is because a lot of people think the term symbiosis means uh, good for both organisms. But actually, symbiosis is an umbrella term. Symbiosis just means interaction between two species. So there are three main flavors of this. There are mutualism. Mutualism is the win-win relationship. So an example of this is pollinators. Pollinators land on flowers, they eat the nectar for food, and then in ex- exchange, they pick up pollen and take it to new hosts or new, new flowers in order to reproduce. Uh, there are parasites. So ophiocordyceps and zombie and other behavior manipulating parasites would definitely fall into the parasite group. Um, everybody here uh, listening to this has probably experienced parasites in the past, either through the form of mosquito bites or maybe some ticks if you've ever gone camping in the woods. And then the third one is a more interesting category called commensalism. And this is defined as one organism benefiting and another one um, neither being benefit nor hurt. Um, And there's some debate on whether or not true commensalism exists if you think of things over the entire course of evolution. But I think one good example of a potential commensalist is a tree frog. So, tree frogs like to hang out in trees, it gives them some camouflage, some height, and protection from predators, so they benefit. I don't think the tree really cares that the frog is there. Uh, Some may, some might not. Uh, It's hard to say.
1: So one of my favorite parasites that also manipulates the behavior of its host is the one you mentioned, Toxoplasma gondii, which is surprisingly common not only in cats, but also importantly in people. And as far as I've read, according to some estimates, something like, 20 to up to almost 50% of all people on the planet carry these parasites lodged in our neural circuits, which is just one example of a parasite from another species that impacts us as much. So as you work with these zombie-making parasites, do you sometimes worry about your own health or about people's health in general?
0: Yeah, so let me get you some background on Toxoplasma gondii. We're using some fancy Latin words that maybe the viewers don't understand. So this is a tiny microorganism. It's a protist, meaning it's eukaryotic, uh, but it's a single-celled eukaryote. And normally, or the the normal host for this uh, is also a dual-host system. So this infects cats um, and reproduces in the cat's uh, body. But it can also exit through fecal matter, just like in the bird example we talked about, or or urine, and it can be picked up by mice. Now, in order to get back to its original host, it causes behavioral changes uh, in the mice that make them less afraid of cats and less adverse to cat urine. So they'll hang out in areas where cats prowl and inevitably are more likely to be eaten than mice that do not have Toxoplasma. Now, toxoplasma is an example of a generalist pathogen, or you might refer to it as, as pseudogeneralist, meaning it can infect multiple hosts. So you, you've already given the example that it can infect not only cats and mice, but also humans. And there's been studies that have shown it in wolves. So mammals seem to be the domain of this protist. Other organisms like ophiocordyceps are highly host-specific, meaning they only have one host. So when I work with Ophiocordyceps, for example, I'm never really afraid of getting infected by this organism because it's so tied together with the behaviors that it manipulates in its ant host that it can't even infect or cause behavioral manipulations in other species of ants, let alone other species of insects, let alone mammals, which are very different. Um, Now, If you want some more background on toxoplasma, there have been some interesting studies trying to figure out, well, does it cause any behavioral change in other mammals? The studies in humans have found that it seems like car crash victims may have higher incident rates of infection with toxoplasma, which could indicate that there may be a slight increase in risk-taking behavior while driving. And it has also been linked correlatively to uh, incidence rates of schizophrenia which is a neurological disorder that happens late in life. So these are two examples of of how this kind of generalist might be affecting uh, animal behavior. But in these cases, we wouldn't refer to this as behavioral manipulation because behavior manipulation has two main components. One, the parasite has to be the causal agent. And two, the behavior that's being exhibited in the host, sometimes referred to as an extended phenotype, must be beneficial to the parasite. So in the case of, you know, these humans, if this is a real effect, humans getting in car crashes does not benefit toxoplasma at all. So it would, it would uh, not be considered a true behavior manipulation.
2: You and your team examined the relationship between fungi and insects, mainly ants, where the fungi basically takes over the insect and makes them do things to help the fungus spread. <laughs> Is that a good summary?
0: That's a fantastic summary.
2: So basically, that turns the insect into a zombie.
0: Yes. Yeah, so maybe here's a good uh, good point to clarify what we mean when we say zombie, because we don't we're not talking about dead things that are brought back to life, which is kind of this classical view of like the land of the dead and a lot of zombie genre movies. But rather, we're talking about behavior manipulation. So there are there's a subcategory of zombie movies where you see that the zombie phenotypes are actually living things, acting very erratically and usually caused by a virus or some other organism. So great examples of movies that depict this real example of symbiosis uh, is The Girl with All the Gifts, which is another movie about what if ophiocordyceps could affect people and also has fantastic biology in it. Uh, I Am Legend can be considered another example of a zombie apocalypse movie where the hosts are still living. And perhaps the best depiction is uh, 28 Days Later, which is a fantastic old film uh, about zombie outbreak caused by uh, a virus. The, and I, I think it gets everything about biology fantastically correct with the exception of the, the rate at which things get infected. So in the movie, people get bitten, and within seconds, they're zombies. That's the only thing I think that's incorrect. One of the things I really like about that film that no, I haven't seen in any other film, spoiler alert, so if, if you're going to watch the film, this, this is going to spoil it. So here's your countdown, your three, two, one. In that movie, at the, the way that the movie ends is all of the zombies die because their bodies are so hyperactive all the time that it's consuming so much energy and without a food source and without eating, their body burns out and they die, which is a fantastic representation of kind of what happens in parasitic relationships.
2: Okay. Well, I have new movies for my list (laughs) when I'm up for, for zombie things. (laughs) Um, so in your research, it turns out that these behaviors in the ants are really similar, regardless of what species of fungi are infecting them. Can you tell us a little bit about why these behaviors might be similar? How, how we get that kind of convergent evolution happening?
0: Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to. And I'm so glad you use the word convergent evolution here because it's not just the fungi that are causing a lot of these similar behaviors. So we talked about the example of the snail and how it causes summoning disease. Well, summoning disease is one of the most common behavior manipulations that we see in these systems. So in, in all of these zombie flies, zombie ants, the zombie snails, you see this climbing behavior. Now for fungi, that's because having your host climb to a, an elevated position Allows you to spread spores further on wind. So it allows you to, to infect more ants than you otherwise would be able to on the floor. Now, what we've found in our research is even though these, these behaviors are similar, the way in which these fungi from different groupings cause this behavior in the host is different. Um, so, you know, the summiting behavior that's caused in zombie flies might be mechanistically different than those that we see in ants.
1: So we actually have some questions from readers specifically about the article. Hi, Dr. Beckerson. My name is Natalie, and I am a grade 10 student in Canada. After reading your zombie ants article, I have a question for you. Does the physical appearance of infected insects change when the zombie fungi enter their body? Thank you so much.
0: The physical appearance does not change. However, ants are very social creatures and they communicate with the world around them through smell, through chemicals, right? So these antenna that you see coming off the ant's head, these are used to smell the environment and this is how they communicate with one another. It's how they know to follow these trails. If you've ever seen, you know, these these ant trails going from like a piece of candy on the sidewalk back to the nest and everybody's single file what's happening there is they're laying pheromone trails that they can then smell with their antenna to follow. So one of the defense mechanisms of ants for when other ants get sick is they can smell a change and they can smell the difference between healthy and sick ants. So once an ant becomes infected with Ophiocordyceps, it's only a matter of time before the ant begins to smell different and the, the rest of the ants in the nest kind of pick up on this. Now, the kind of uh, brutal yet brilliant strategy of ants to deal with sickness is to simply kill that individual and take it away from the nest. So, you know, we call this social immunity.
1: Maybe they should take it away first and then kill it there. <laughs> yeah. So as opposed to killing it in the nest, if they're gonna kill it anyways.
0: Well, like I like I said before, the ophiocordyceps cannot be transmitted during this kind of yeast-like growth phase. So, killing it near the nest does not cause infection. Um, So they're able to do this. But when you kill the host, then there's nothing for the fungus to manipulate, and then it really can't complete its life cycle. So one of the other behavioral manipulations that we see is very early on into infection, before the other ants can tell the difference, the f- the fungus causes the ants to abandon their social roles and to leave the nest and, and increase for, uh, what we call foraging behavior, which is basically this wandering, searching behavior Um, And then we also see some disruption of the circadian rhythm or the daily rhythm that tells you when it's time to sleep and when it's time to be awake. The ants that we study from Florida are normally nocturnal, meaning they're awake at night and asleep during the day. But when they're infected by ophiocordyceps, just like the zombies in the movie, they're awake all the time. They they forage, their activity is increased. And one of the things that we're really trying to piece together in our research is what chemicals are the fungi making? that are causing this increase in activity and disruption of circadian rhythm.
1: So we have a few more questions that take you even further back to basic biology. Hi, I'm Ailey and I'm in first grade and I have some questions for you. I've noticed that ants are very small and if they're small, why do they build such big houses? And why do they live
0: in groups? Yes, that's a that's a very good observation that you made. Ants are comparatively very small. And it's precisely the fact that they are small that they work together and they, they build such big houses. Because when you don't have size, there's power in numbers. So they make lots and lots of ants, and lots of ants need somewhere big to live. Because there's so many of them, they need a big house to live in. By living in groups and working together... They are able to protect themselves from other really big insects that might otherwise harm them. So, really, uh, they they work together as a big family uh, to protect one another, and that gives them an advantage in nature.
1: Awesome. Okay, one more question. Here it is: Why do some ants have wings and others don't?
0: Some ants have wings, and some don't, and some. it's because they're different species. And some, it's just because of the roles that they play in the nest. So most of the ants that you've ever seen are female. So ants only produce female workers. They only produce female soldiers. And the queens themselves are females. The only time that you see male ants is during mating season, uh, when you have male ants. The reason they have wings is so they can fly off to new colonies and form new families with other ants. Um, And then you'll also see wings on uh, queens when they're new. And once they find uh, a a male, which is called a drone to pair with, then they lose their wings as well. So wings can be based on your role that you play in in your family, in your society. But also certain insects have wings all the time, like some of the beetles. And this has to do with lifestyle. So for certain organisms, being able to fly around, uh, like, for example, bees, and and to get to pollen and nectar more easily is advantageous. So in nature, the bees that evolve this this ability to move around quicker are selected for, meaning they produce more often than bees that do not. And this is called natural selection. So over time, uh, you might have an adaptation that allows you to move more quickly, and then this can eventually turn into something like wings that allows you to move very quickly and, and up and down and left and right. And that happens very slowly over a long period of time because these traits are advantageous.
2: Okay, so at the end of each of our episodes, we like to to ask a a fun question. Your research is really, really interesting, and it sounds like there are a lot of still unanswered questions. If you had a million dollars, what would your next big research question be? What would you want to do with that money?
0: Uh, I think with that amount of money, what I would really like to do is expand the research community that, that's studying these questions. So right now, there are only a few labs in the world that study the molecular genetic components of these. There's, there's lots of labs out there that, that study the life cycles and the environment that these live in and how they impact you know the communities around them. But there's not so many that are studying how these parasites manipulate their hosts. So what, what I would do is I would set up some sort of consortium and have people give give pockets of this money for people to study different things, like the zombie beetles, like the zombie snails, and collaboratively work together so that we can see how these convergently evolved traits are similar and how they're different and, and really expand the body of knowledge around uh, zombifying uh, parasites.
1: Wow, Will, thank you so much for teaching us so much, not only about zombie ants, but also about so many biological topics. Oh, no
0: problem. I, I, thank you so much for having me. And I love uh, talking about zombie uh, ants to anybody who will listen.
2: Did you know that you can directly read one of Will's scientific papers stripped from its complex scientific jargon and made understandable to readers as young as fifth grade in school? The link is in the show notes. You can also just Google its title, How Do Some Fungi Turn Insects Into Zombies? Or go directly to www.sciencejournalforkids.org and search for zombie.
1: That's all for today. This is our last episode in this season and this year. If you haven't yet, we recommend that you go back and listen to our previous episodes. You'll find nine other interviews with fascinating researchers from all sorts of disciplines, from robotics, earthquakes and space science, to seals, beavers, and fossils, we really have something for every taste. This podcast was produced with help from volunteers Natalia Torres-Behar, Natalie Zhu, and Ilya Mladenova, sound engineer Maria Mikhailova, and hosts Miranda Wilson and me, Tanya Dimitrova. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to this podcast to receive notifications about future episodes of Science Journal for Kids, Ask a Scientist. Until then.